I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hey friends. Today, we're stepping into the world of wildlife medicine and rehabilitation. We're talking about treating wild animals that are sick or injured, and then hopefully returning them into the wild. Sounds like a wonderful, warm, and fuzzy kind of job, right? Well, yes and no. While it can be an incredibly rewarding job, it also comes along with some real challenges, financially, emotionally, and clinically. And no one knows this better than my guest today, Dr. Rob Adamski. Rob is a wildlife vet and currently Associate Professor of Captive Care and Wildlife at Unity College in Maine. He's super experienced in all things wildlife medicine. As a proud graduate of the University of Glasgow School of Veterinary Medicine in Scotland, he went on to complete specialty internships at Western College of Veterinary Medicine and the National Aquarium. He then spent several years at New England Wildlife Center, treating both wildlife and exotic pets, which is super cool. And side note, he's also a trained human EMT, so there's literally no species he won't treat, including humans. As you'll hear, Rob's a natural teacher, and after I recorded this full interview, I had so much good stuff, and I really didn't want to delete any of it, so I actually decided to split it into two separate episodes. This episode you're about to hear focuses on his experiences in wildlife rehabilitation, but we've also got a future episode coming where he talks about his whole journey into becoming a wildlife vet. And spoiler alert, it's definitely not a traditional route, so stay tuned, you're definitely going to want to listen to that episode. I'll mention here that you don't need to be a veterinarian to become involved in wildlife rehabilitation, but you do need some special training and a license to start rehabbing wildlife on your own. No, sorry, you can't just start holding birds and squirrels hostage in your living room and trying to treat them on your own. You need to get the proper credentials first. So if wildlife rehabilitation is something you've always dreamed of doing, or this episode just gets you all fired up and you want to get involved, check out the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association website. They've got lots of great info there, and I put some links in the show notes. So now sit back and get ready to learn everything you ever wanted to know about wildlife rehabilitation. Like, what happens to an animal if they accidentally eat something highly toxic, like lead or rat poison? Can you actually save them? And what's the difference between a rescue and a kidnapping? How do you pay for all this medical care of wildlife? if they don't have owners to foot the bill for them? And how do you do this job day in and day out without burning out? I wanna know all the gritty details, so let's get to it. Here's Dr. Rob Adamski. So this is the point in your career story you mentioned um starting at new england wildlife which is where i originally met you um geez i guess seven years ago now Mm -hmm. at least yeah so yeah let's let's dive in a little bit more into into that position because you were there for um for a few years right yeah yeah i was there between seven and eight years yeah i think probably a lot of our listeners may have an interest in wildlife rehab or potentially pursuing wildlife rehab as a career so I would love to hear a little bit more about what it was like working there, sure. and kind of your perspectives on, yeah, on being a, a wildlife rehabber as a career. 
So what I would say for, uh, from a wildlife medicine, wildlife rehab standpoint, look at it this way. Your main goal in life, and, and you need to keep the goal in mind because that's going to affect your decisions and how you operate as a veterinarian. The goal of wildlife rehab is to take injured, ill, and orphaned wildlife. And notice I said orphaned, like really orphaned, not kidnapped. All right, and we can get into that later. Well, since he mentioned it, let's just get into it now. By kidnapping, he means a situation where a well-meaning person finds a young animal out in the wild all by themselves, and they mistakenly assume that that animal is orphaned. And then they grab them up and bring them into a wildlife rehab center, or worse, they bring them home and try to hand-rear them themselves. Taking a young animal out of the wild unnecessarily is always a bad thing for that animal, so you should never assume an animal is orphaned. For many species like deer and rabbits, it's totally normal for the young to be left alone for several hours at a time. Even nestling birds that fall can often be safely returned to their nest, or put in a makeshift nest box close by where the parents will continue to care for them. Don't worry. That whole thing about birds rejecting their chicks once they are touched by a human is total hogwash. And also, it's totally normal for fledgling birds to leave the nest and hop around on the ground for a little while until they can fly. On the other hand, if the young animal is visibly injured or sick, or if you're certain the animal is orphaned because, for example, you observed the dead parent, then that's a reason to give a call to your local wildlife rehabber but it's always a good idea to get their advice first before you snatch up that cute baby critter. Okay, that's it. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Now back to Rob. But to take injured, ill, and orphaned wildlife, patch them back up, do whatever needs to be done to get them back into a condition where they're going to be releasable back into the wild, and the criteria for that is they need to be able to survive in the wild by themselves without further human intervention and then get them back out into the wild. But that's the ultimate goal for rehab. Like they're not pets. They're not, you know, your goal is not to keep them in captivity. Your goal is to get them back out into the wild. And so New England Wildlife Center is a fascinating facility. Um, it's one of the primary wildlife rehab facilities in Massachusetts. Um, they deal with anywhere from 700 to over 2,000 cases a year. Uh, we see everything. You can get it in the door. We'll see it. We deal with amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals. Uh, you name it, we see it. Whoa. 2,000 cases a year? So how do they pay for all that? Where does the money come from? Wildlife medicine and wildlife rehab is never going to be self-sustaining or be able to pay for itself. Your bald eagle doesn't come in with an American Express card, unfortunately. So most of the time, you're going to be working for a nonprofit and you still need to pay the bills. You need to keep the electricity on. The drug companies aren't giving you free meds and, you know, you need to pay the bills. So that's going to affect the type of medicine you're going to be doing. And one of the ways Nuke or New England Wildlife Center dealt with that, and it's a fascinating and highly successful business model. Uh, I give credit to Greg Mertz and Katrina Bergman, um, the leaders at that facility for coming up with this business model in that 
they utilize a first opinion exotic companion animal practice to help subsidize the wildlife care. So people will bring you their pet iguanas, their pet snakes, their, uh, you know, their red-eared slider turtles, their budgies, their parakeets, their guinea pigs and ferrets and chinchillas and rabbits and, you know, all those little small pocket pets. And then all the care, the revenue that's uh, derived from that gets funneled back into and helps subsidize and support the wildlife care, which is an interesting um, concept. Yeah, that's such an interesting model that they've created. Have have you come across that model anywhere else? I haven't come across any other facilities that are using it, but I have had a couple of facilities reach out to Nuke uh, and and be interested in you know modeling um, or duplicating that uh, process. Because if, if you can actually get it to work, it actually is a really helpful, useful business model for like wildlife rehab facilities. You know, we were seeing wildlife cases every day and we were seeing all different kinds of wildlife cases, reptile, birds, mammals, you name it. So we were doing that. We were doing medical, surgical cases, okay? Um, in addition to that, because we had that business model, I was also seeing exotic companion animals. And that's very rare in the same facility to be able to do wildlife medicine and exotic companion animals. And not only was it interesting and challenging from a professional standpoint, but I think it helped me develop my skills since that was my first full real-time job. And it ended up making me a better veterinarian. And part of being a good vet is client education, or in this case, educating the people who are bringing these wild animals into your clinic. Another huge component of being a wildlife rehabilitator or practicing wildlife medicine is educating the public, all right? The vast majority of the cases you're gonna see in wildlife medicine are there because of some unfortunate interaction with humans, okay? That human wildlife conflict, uh, whether it is a bird of prey, a raptor, like a Cooper's hawk or a red-tailed hawk that ends up having rodenticide. Rodenticide, AKA rat poison but we'll go into way more detail on that in just a minute. You have uh, Eastern box turtle that got hit by a car as it's trying to, you know, go find its nest site, you know, or find a mate during the spring mating season, fledgling songbirds that are orphaned, quote unquote, and actually they're kidnapped. Yep, back on our kidnapping soapbox. They don't understand the fact that a fledgling songbird, even though it looks like an adult, and it, it can't fly, and that's normal. It's going through a natural part of its um, life cycle as it you know, falls out of the nest, it flops around on the, for a week or two on the ground, you know, building up its flight muscles, getting the coordination and learning how to fly, and that's a normal process. And people just simply don't understand that, and what they see is what looks like an adult bird that can't fly, and they're gonna go rescue it, when the bird, in fact, is a fledgling songbird and doesn't need to be rescued in the first place. Even though it's not sexy or cool, that educational aspect of wildlife rehabilitation can often prevent so many problems. So it's not all just doing, you know, prescribing, diagnosing, and doing surgery. You know, there's a lot more to it. So on this thread of public education, let's circle back to the whole rat poison thing. Because this is a perfect example of something that people might be doing without even realizing the huge impact it has on wildlife. 
because when you use rat and mouse poison in your house, it doesn't just end with that rodent you're trying to kill. After that mouse eats the poison, but it hasn't died yet, sometimes they go out and they go on to get eaten themselves by a predator, like a hawk. Now, that unlucky hawk has eaten the mouse and all that poison along with it, which is what we call a secondary toxicity. And there can be enough poison in that mouse to actually kill the hawk as well. Unless that hawk is lucky enough to get treatment at a wildlife rehab center. And this is where Rob comes in. The most common types of patients we see rodenticide or anticoagulant rat poison, basically, would be our birds of prey, okay? Our owls, our hawks, and our eagles. So those animals then suffer from a secondary contact exposure with this anticoagulant rodenticide. They're gonna consume that contaminated prey and then they're, in turn, they're exposed to the poison. And there's a couple different types of uh, rodenticides out there, but the one, the most common one, and the one we're gonna talk about right now would be the anticoagulant version. And basically what that is, it blocks the action of vitamin K in the normal clotting processes of the body. So it's gonna prevent uh, this vitamin from working correctly. It's gonna to bind to that vitamin and then prevent the body from using that vitamin to help clot their blood normally. Warning, nerd alert here. If you wanna know the details of vitamin K in the clotting process, listen close. But if organic chemistry makes your brain hurt, now's the time for earmuffs. Vitamin K serves as an essential cofactor for a carboxylase enzyme that catalyzes carboxylation of glutamic acid residues on vitamin K-dependent proteins. Some of the vitamin K-dependent proteins include coagulation proteins, such as prothrombin and factors 7, 9, and 10. So basically, vitamin K helps with this carboxylation step that forms these gamma-carboxyglutamic acids. And it's this step that allows the proteins to become biologically active. Therefore, no vitamin K means no carboxylation, and therefore, those clotting proteins are stuck in a biologically inactive form, so they can't actually help clot the blood. The more you know. So unfortunately, what you end up having is you end up bleeding spontaneously throughout your body. It's a pretty awful, horrific death. And so we'll often get these birds of prey com coming in, they're gonna be collapsed, okay? They're gonna show general, severe general weakness. They're gonna have pale mucous membranes. You may see random spontaneous bruising that doesn't make any sense. Like you poke them with like a tiny little 25 gauge needle and you hold the site off like you normally would and yet you get this huge hematoma that's difficult to control. Uh, you may also see um, bleeding from various body or, uh, orifices like the eyes, the nose, the mouth, uh, the vent, since it's a bird. For my non-avian friends, the vent is the bird butt. Birds have a cloaca, also known as the vent, which is one opening shared by the digestive, urinary, and reproductive tracts. Basically one hole for everything which sounds both convenient and horrifying. It's like a urethrogenito-anal opening. I think I just made that up, but it sounds good. So let's go with that. Uh, so 
And then these birds will often be in shock uh, from, the, from the blood loss. So that's the pathology behind it. And that's the way the birds are exposed. We don't really have a good clinical diagnostic test for anticoagulant rodenticide. You can send tissues like the liver, for instance, off to the lab, um, but that's not something we typically do uh, for like an anti-mortem test for patients that are still alive. So we can do like a, there's a crude test called a clotting time test where you take a sample of blood and for most bird species, if you just stick it in a plain red top tube, it should clot in like five minutes or less. That's the rough guideline. And so we'll get birds to give you a clue as to how severe these problems, uh, these patients are when they come in. Well, you know, if their blood's supposed to clot in five minutes or less, we have patients coming in, their blood doesn't clot for like 10, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, or even like we give up counting. That's, that's how long. So bleeding out all of your orifices and into your body cavity sounds pretty bad. So can we actually treat this, especially in raptors? The treatment for this is basically vitamin K. You basically supplement uh, that patient's vitamin K to a point where the rodenticide or the toxin can't bind to it all. And then that allows the body to start using the vitamin K and the, the bird, the patient will start clotting normally again. So again, the supportive care is essential. You need to keep that patient alive long enough for the, the vitamin K to start working correctly. Like I always tell you know, interns and vet students and vet tech students, you know, all the gee whiz, high tech vet medicine stuff is great. And, you know, like, hey, let's go take x-rays and CAT scans and let's do all this cool stuff. But getting a x-ray on a deceased patient does not help their prognosis or their overall survival. So they'll come in in shock because of the blood loss from the spontaneous bleeding from the toxin. And then they'll come in in respiratory distress because they're often going to be bleeding into their lungs, for instance. So if possible, you can do oxygen therapy uh, to keep them uh, oxygenated, and then we'll provide supplemental fluids, either subcutaneous, IV, uh, IO, like intraosseous, et cetera, uh, to provide supplemental fluids for that animal uh, to help treat shock as well. And then you're going to treat the condition itself. The, uh, the antidote for it is the vitamin K supplementation. Okay. So if we can keep them alive with good supportive care until the vitamin K supplements start to kick in, that sounds pretty promising. But remember, the end goal is to release these guys back into the wild. So even once the bleeding stops, your work isn't done. Remember, if we're dealing with birds of prey, for instance, okay, those animals essentially need to be at the level of an Olympic athlete just to be able to survive on a daily basis. For them to hunt effectively, they need to be in really good body condition and really good shape and they need to have good, you know, flight capability. So yes, you need to treat them, but that's not the end all be all before that animals in a condition where it's going to be releasable back into the wild, you need to provide supplemental follow-up care like physical therapy. Okay. And uh, nutritional care to get that animal in a condition so that it will be able to survive in the wild like the human medicine equivalent would be asking somebody who's been in the intensive care unit, all right, for like a month to go run a marathon the next day, right after they get discharged. And that's obviously not setting your patient up for success. So after we treat them initially, then they need to go out into the flight cage, 
make sure they're eating well by themselves. And then before they release, you need to basically do exercise. You need to haze them every day to make sure they're actually doing what they should and they're actually building up their flight strength, their endurance, their coordination. So we as a guideline would make sure our patient could do multiple laps without resting. We would make sure they were able to bank and turn, all right, and they were able to perch effectively. And then we would do a live prey test to ensure that the animal could actually visualize target a prey and then effectively kill it. And all of that we did to ensure that it met the criteria of being able to survive in the wild by itself without further human intervention. And again, remember, going back to our very beginning, that's the goal of wildlife rehabilitation. Yeah, that's such a good point. You know, with pets, for example, you just need to kind of treat them to the point where they're stable outside of the hospital, and then you can send yep. them home. Good luck. And, you know, for most of our pets in America, they don't have to do all that much. They are sort of couch that's potatoes. Right. And I'm okay with um, they're that. Not, you know? They're not yeah. athletes. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, and that's fine. Yeah. That's, that's their, that's their job is to just be yeah. companions, but you're absolutely right with wildlife. It's a totally different story. Shifting topics now, but still talking about wildlife, eating toxic things that humans have put into the environment. Let's talk about lead poisoning. I could go on a whole rant about this. It's a wildlife health problem I've been personally involved in. And I've published a few papers on this topic, etc. We're probably going to devote a whole episode to this in the future, so I'm going to try and rein myself in and not take us down that rabbit hole right now. But just know it's one of the biggest wildlife health issues out there. And we know that in certain species, it actually causes significant population-level impacts, like in the common loon and California condors. It's also super common in animals presented to wildlife rehab clinics. So you have lead toxicosis, and unfortunately, it is a really common problem, especially in New England. I would estimate, based on the cases I saw and doing some basic retrospective chart review, that about 40 to 50% at least of the waterfowl, uh, i.e. ducks, geese, and swans, that we would get into the wildlife center on an annual basis all had to some degree, greater or lesser uh, lead toxicosis. So let's take a Canada goose as a prime example, right? So your Canada goose is gonna get exposed to the lead in the environment due to the fact that we have 300 plus years worth of hunting and fishing activity, human activity that's occurred in New England and all of those bullet fragments, shotgun pellets, lead weight sinkers, all of that material is now on the bottom of our ponds, lakes, streams here in New England. So as these animals, let's take your Canada goose again. So he, that animal's an herbivore, they're gonna eat aquatic plants. So as he's swimming around the pond, you know, in uh, Massachusetts, as he's foraging for aquatic plants, he's also gonna end up sucking up some of these 300 years worth of shotgun pellets and bullet fragments and lead weight sinkers. And unfortunately, as they ingest that lead as a heavy metal, that's extremely toxic. It is amazing, once you do the research, you find out just how awful lead is. Quick aside, and just wanted to mention that lead is equally as toxic to people. So if you are currently using lead fishing sinkers or lead bullets for hunting, I'd strongly consider switching to one of the non-toxic alternatives that's on the market. 
Um, it has multiple different effects throughout the animal. So these animals will take ingest this lead, it ends up in their stomach, and then what happens is uh, the lead ends up dissolving and getting absorbed into their body uh, because the hydrochloric acid in their stomach ends up dissolving it, and then it's absorbed in the bloodstream, and it ends up affecting their bone marrow. It ends up affecting the GI tract. It causes inflammation throughout the body. It affects the reproductive system. So these animals come in oftentimes with neurologic symptoms, GI tract symptoms. Um, they'll be anemic, okay? And that's because of all the side effects and all the problems that uh, this heavy metal causes throughout the body. So we'll often get these waterfowl in, they'll be emaciated and skinny, they'll be vomiting, they'll have diarrhea, they won't be eating. Uh, they'll, be, they'll display general weakness, they'll be uncoordinated, they're not gonna be able to fly. Uh, if it's really bad, they might, not even, they might be so weak uh, that they wouldn't even be able to stand. So the, those are the typical clinical signs you're gonna see with lead toxicosis or lead poisoning. And the problem is the severity of this condition and whether it's going to be permanent or not depends on both the load they get, the amount of lead they've been exposed to and that's been absorbed into their body, as well as the duration of that exposure. So if these animals have been exposed to it for an extended period of time, everything we do may not be enough to fix the problem. So we can treat them and there is an effective treatment plan for lead toxicosis and we can go into that in a minute. But the clinical signs may remain. You can get all the lead out of their body, but the damage, the neurologic damage, the damage to the GI tract may end up becoming permanent, unfortunately. One of the problems is we're not treating the underlying cause. We still have the environmental contamination. We're lucky enough in New England to have uh, probably the preeminent lead toxicosis wildlife veterinarian, uh, Dr. Mark Pokris. Quick shameless plug here. Check out episode two, where I interview Dr. Pokris. And I've worked with uh, Dr. Pokris on a regular basis, and you, you discover just how prevalent lead contamination is in our environment. Like I didn't realize, I thought there was no more lead in pain and stuff. And, that, and that's actually not true. The only place lead's been removed from is paint that's gonna be on the inside of human dwellings. All the industrial paint, like on roads, uh, commercial properties, exterior buildings, et cetera, that still all has lead in it. So there's huge contamination of our environment with various sources of lead. And animals all over the uh, spectrum are being exposed to it. And turns out, the more we test for lead exposure in wildlife, the more we find. When I first started at Nuke, we didn't have any way of determining whether animals had been exposed to lead or not. Then we got a grant and we ended up uh, purchasing a lead test kit, which is the same uh, lead analyzer that human medical facilities use, like doctor's offices and stuff. And what I basically found out was the more we tested, the more prevalent we found and more severe we found that the problem was. Um, every taxonomic group of animal we tested ended up having some sort of lead exposure. We ended up testing mammals, raccoons and squirrels all have lead 
you know, potential for lead toxicosis. Um, the squirrels get it from, I didn't realize this, the lead flashing in roofs uh, has lead in it. Um, raccoons as scavengers are especially prone to lead toxicosis. Uh, we even found, uh, you know, besides the waterfowl and the birds of prey that are especially prone to lead toxicosis, either from, you know, the waterfowl get it from the, uh, the bullet fragments, shotgun pellets, and the lead sinkers, and then the birds of prey, uh, the hawks and not eagles, as well as the uh, scavengers uh, like um, corvids, like um, uh, ravens and uh, crows, end up getting the lead toxicosis from scavenging carcasses, for instance, that have been hit by hunters and they have bullet fragments or shotgun pellets in them and they end up scavenging the uh, carcasses off of them. So those animals are affected. We even found snake species that had uh, lead in it, and we haven't quite figured out where they got it from. Um, songbirds can get lead. We didn't realize uh, the American robin, since, since it eats worms, uh, earthworms are a huge accumulator of lead in the soil. And since that's one of their main prey items, they end up getting you know huge exposure to lead toxicosis. So a significant portion of the wildlife in New England in some way, manner, form, or other has been exposed to lead poisoning, which potentially can be devastating uh, and have life-threatening consequences and can be permanent as well. Treatment does work as far as we know. Uh, there haven't been a lot of studies that do follow-up uh, research to determine how well these animals do in the wild. But we have shown at least that we can get in the vast majority of cases, not every time, um, but in the vast majority of cases, as long as we catch it quickly enough, we can get these animals to a point where they actually are releasable back again into the wild. The lead treatment is a multi-pronged approach. So you have to, you know, these animals often come in malnourished, emaciated, dehydrated. So providing that supportive care with sub-Q fluids, nutritional support, you know, um, all of that is just as important as actually getting rid of the lead. Now to get rid of the lead, the best treatment we found, and there's a couple different options, but the one we used at New England Wildlife Center was to use calcium EDTA. Calcium EDTA is a chelation agent, which is just a compound that binds the lead and then removes it from the blood. With treatment, the clinical signs either often resolve totally or are significantly reduced enough to the point that the animal is deemed releasable back out into the wild. That was an excellent overview of lead poisoning and wildlife 101. <laughs> there you go. So let's now talk about some of the less common cases. The weird and wonderful cases that you've seen over the years in wildlife rehab. Are there a couple that kind of come to mind that you can share with us? So some of the, the most memorable cases I've had or the most rewarding cases I've had, one was a juvenile co female coyote that ended up coming in, was hit by a car, was in shock, uh, had a broken leg, and was on death's door. She was malnourished, all right? She was uh, in shock, she was dehydrated, she had musculoskeletal injuries, um, she had parasites everywhere. She was like a disaster, she was a mess. 
And the reason I find this case so rewarding is we took this disaster, we managed to splint the leg successfully. We got rid of the parasites, we treated shock, um, we got her body condition back up, she ate like a champ. And we ended up transferring her out to a wildlife rehabilitator that specializes in medium-sized carnivores. And she ended up getting the proper socialization and learning how to be a coyote, all right, as a juvenile with this wildlife rehabilitator out in Western Massachusetts. And the final take home point was I, the wildlife rehabilitator ended up showing a video of her uh, right before she got released into a huge wildlife uh, preserve um, where she was literally running full tilt on her not so broken leg anymore in beautiful body condition. She was an adult coyote by that time. She was about a year old and she looked great and she was a very successful release. So that, you know, that was one of our more involved and complicated cases, but it was in the end, it was rewarding. And while individual animal welfare and medicine is an important part of wildlife rehab, many don't realize what an important role they play in population level wildlife health as well. As a wildlife rehab facility, you are on the front lines. You can make a recognizable and clinically relevant difference in population level wildlife management. While wildlife rehabilitation often deals with individual animals, just know that wildlife rehab facilities can play other roles and do have other benefits, uh, both from a scientific and from a societal standpoint. New England Wildlife Center, uh, we were really proud uh, the last year or two, we ended up doing a lot of Head Start turtle work with um, uh, the Massachusetts Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, as well as the New England Zoo. And we did it with various turtle species, uh, Eastern box turtles, um, Northern red-bellied cooters, okay? And this is a fantastic uh, wildlife conservation program where we take uh, hatchling turtles who suffer a huge mortality rate, okay? Um, the vast majority of turtle hatchlings don't make it for a multitude of reasons. A lot of them uh, have to do with predation. And you end up raising these species up the first year or two in captivity. Uh, they estimate because of the improved environmental conditions and nutrition and diet and all that, every year in captivity equals about five years of growth in the wild. And so with the advantages of the Head Start program, it significantly decreases the mortality rate and increases the survival rate of these uh, threatened and endangered species of native turtles. If you're having a bad day, do yourself a favor and go do a Google image search for hatchling box turtle. These things are ridiculously cute with their big eyes and their tiny little tails sticking out. And they're only about one and a quarter inch long. So yeah, I can see why something that tiny would need a little head start in life. But cute Keelonians aside, as Rob mentioned, wildlife rehab centers are on the front lines of wildlife health. And they can be in a perfect position to detect emerging diseases. This actually happened a couple years ago, when Rob and his colleagues detected virulent Newcastle disease in double-crested cormorants in New England. 
when you see something out of the ordinary, pay attention, okay? The reason we ended up picking up on this problem is because both of us noticed, hey, we only get like a handful of double-crested cormorants on an annual basis at both of our wildlife centers. And then all of a sudden, over a period of two weeks in the middle of the summer, we ended up getting dozens of cases in. We got dozens of double-crested cormorants, which was highly unusual. And then when we investigated, we actually did detect the problem. And that, was, that ended up being confirmed at the National Wildlife Health Center. It got reported to the state, the federal authorities, okay? And we actually made a significant difference. Making a difference is awesome. It's what we all want, right? But for all those success stories, there are a lot of times in wildlife rehab where you feel like you can't help. And that sucks, but it's part of the job. You're not going to fix everybody, and that's part of life, and if you're in wildlife medicine, you need to accept that. The survival rate, the release rate for most wildlife rehab centers, now you can play with your stats and that, but in general, nationally across North America and the U.S. and Canada, the successful release rate for wildlife rehab centers is between 30 to 40 percent, give or take, right? So that means, okay, well over 50% of your patients are not going to make it back out into the wild. And that's because we only see the worst of the worst, okay? We have a self-selecting patient population base. If you're only a little bit hurt, a little bit sick, all right, and you're a wild animal, you're obviously not going to let somebody catch you, okay, to bring you into a rehab center. You're going to fly away, run away, bite them swim away, whatever you got to do to get away from, you know, a person. So we only get the sickest of the sick and the most injured of the injured. And a lot of times you need to realize that euthanasia is not a bad thing, right? If it's done because you're relieving an animal of suffering that you can't, you know, fix the problem or they've been so severely injured or they're so severely ill that they're not going to be releasable back out into the wild, then euthanasia, humane euthanasia, is often the correct course of action. And that's something you need to accept as a wildlife veterinarian or a wildlife rehabilitator. In wildlife rehabilitation, you probably have days where you feel like you're just having to euthanize everything that walks in the door. Right. You're very limited with what you can do and the cases you're seeing are just beyond help. You probably definitely have days that are pretty depressing for lack of a better word, but then every once in a while you'll have these really amazing and rewarding cases. And I think, you know, to reinforce the point you made about uh, the success stories, that's really important, okay? One, a huge problem in veterinary medicine in general, but especially in wildlife medicine, is compassion fatigue. Huge, significant problem. And so I always tell my staff, my wildlife, my uh, vet techs, the wildlife rehabilitators I work with, you know, celebrate your successes, you know? And realize that every animal you save is a life and you actually do make a difference. One of the things I was always uh, very, a very strong proponent for and always I tried to make sure it happened was that on a regular basis, I would have everybody, interns, vet techs, myself, 
I'd even try to get the receptionist involved, volunteers, everybody to go out and celebrate releases. And so, you know, celebrating those releases and having people go out and, you know, go through the process and being able to take pictures or actually release the animal, you know, that, that makes a difference. And that helps people deal with all those bad days. Yeah, that's so important. <laughs> such, such good advice for anyone dealing with not even just wildlife rehab, just sort of wildlife, um, mm. wildlife in general is just really celebrate those successes. I feel like, I feel That's like we've a good covered point. everything. All right. <laughs> Boom. Drop the mic. We're good. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It was amazing. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Hopefully, uh, everybody that's listening and watching learned something. You didn't find it too awful and boring. And uh, as you hit the leave button and you guys are done, you, ha you actually uh, know more than when you came in. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast.